Well, with that, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. It's always bittersweet for me to come near to the end of a Bible book. I don't know when I'll ever get to preach it again, if ever, and so I'm thankful for having gone through 1 Timothy. We're almost to the end, and at the same time, there's a bit of grief. It becomes like I'm about to leave an old friend as well. But the end of this book is just spectacular and has so many good things for us. And so as we're drawing near to the end of our series, Well Done, Good and Faithful Church, in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6, and you recall this is what we've been highlighting to help us understand what a mature and a ministry-ready church is so that when we move to our new facility, uh, Lord willing, that, uh, that we're ready. And, and speaking of which, 80 of you came yesterday to help out and the place looks great. We're, we're just moments away from being ready to move in. So we're thankful for all of you. But this is an interesting text here because we've just heard the glorious doxology, the, the heavenly description of God given in verses 14, uh, 15 and 16, rather. And so it's so glorious that last time we stood up twice to read this together. It is incredible description of the honor and the majesty of God. And all of a sudden, it's like you let all the air out of the tires here. In verse 17, it's almost this anticlimactic moment when after describing God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul says, make sure and give to the work of the ministry. And it just feels like an anticlimax. He begins writing now to the ones he calls the rich in this present age. But I would say this, while it might seem anticlimactic, this is actually a continuation of the theme that Paul interrupted earlier. In verses uh, 4 through 10 or so, Paul warned of the path of destruction for those who worship their wealth, those who love money. But now, Paul is instructing true believers with means, with money, how to avoid the love of money. And how do you avoid the love of money? His basic premise is simple. Give it away. Give it away because you can't love what you don't have. And on this section, in this section rather, on giving to gospel work, giving to the proclamation of Christ, it really ends with a grand and a heavenly note, as we'll see. So the reality of the vision of God we received in verses 15 and 16, it's not really an anticlimax because in verse 19, we're standing in heaven again. We're beholding the glory of God, but with some bonuses that we'll see at the end of our time together. Now, I want to take some time to get into this because it's a, it's a tender topic. It takes money to do the work of the kingdom. And that goes all the way back to the law of Moses in which God commanded that Israel financially support the temple and those who minister in it. And in fact, in Malachi 3, verse 8, he says, if you don't do that, you're stealing from God. You're stealing from the Lord. The early church didn't really have time to be taught much about this. They just instinctively gave generously to the work of the kingdom. That You read the book of Acts, in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's this instinctive generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul praised the Macedonian Christians, these would be the churches of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica, for their generosity to kingdom work. 
I came to Grace Bible Church the first Sunday of January in 2013 and have observed a long-running tradition of generosity and faith in the Lord in terms of giving. By God's grace and by your faithfulness, we have added staff members to elevate the ministry uh, on average about every two years. This is the fruit of the gospel now being seen, worked out through the church. This is an ancient and a glorious and a biblical team effort for the propagation of the truth, the spread of the gospel, and the shepherding of your own souls. This is how God has worked the church. And as you're very, very well aware, over the past couple of years, your faithfulness to our joyful generosity capital campaign has been nothing short of awe-inspiring. When we first started this, we hired a consultant And that consultant told us that Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield broke all their rules, broke all of their known uh, statistics. The Lord has rewarded your faithfulness with our new facility, which we will enjoy in a matter of weeks now. You may may recall that when we began Joyful Generosity, I preached a series, incidentally called Joyful Generosity. We did a series of messages on the theology of giving. And we learned much as a church together. We learned reasons that we give from Scripture. And we, we gave these reasons. We give because of God's ownership. We give because of God's grace. We give because of God's provision. We give because of God's church. We give because of God's reward. We give because of God's glory. And ultimately, we give because of God's kingdom. And so these are glorious, wonderful things. We don't say give to keep the lights on. Who cares about keeping the lights on? We care about the kingdom. Now, to be honest, as I was preparing for this text, something occurred to me that I don't know if I've ever really thought about before. And that is, for me personally as a pastor, I've never really shied away from preaching about giving. And I had to ask myself why. Because frankly, conventional wisdom among pastors is that you tread very lightly on this topic. So why would we not shy away from this? So in a moment of self-reflection, I sat down and made 25 reasons I'll give you 10 of them. I don't want to bore you all morning, but I want to give you 10 reasons we don't apologize for preaching on giving, and I'm going to give you one bonus reason from our text this morning. Here's 10 reasons. The first one we will call God's generous provision. God's generous provision is that God always generously provides for those who fund the gospel ministry. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. No Christian has ever starved to death because they gave to the work of the ministry. That's never happened one time. The second reason we don't apologize for preaching on giving, we'll call this the vitality of worship. The vitality of worship, it's a vital part of our worship. To shy away from preaching on giving, get this, is the same as being hesitant to preach on the Lord's Supper or to preach on baptism or on preaching itself or on worship and song or on fellowship or prayer. Giving is worship. In fact, it characterizes what true worship really is because worship is not something you come to for you. Worship is something you give to God. And so it's a tangible reminder that I'm here to give something, not to get something. In fact, in the Old Testament, you would not dare attempt to worship God without bringing something. You wouldn't do it. There's a third reason we don't apologize. We'll call this the Bible's boldness. The Bible's boldness. The Bible never shies away from this topic. You only need to read Paul's theology of giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to see his masterful and aggressive stance on giving to the gospel ministry. 
And in fact, as we're going to see here in the three short verses we're considering today, Paul doesn't tread lightly around the topic of the rich. Quite the opposite. Paul uses various forms of the word in your face all over the place. It's like he's saying rich, 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 rich. He's not apologizing at all. There's a fourth reason we don't apologize. No fear of man. No fear of man. I, I really, there's only one reason to shy away from preaching on giving, and that's fear of man. Instead, rather than being afraid of what people might think if a sermon on giving is presented, the sermon should make the people afraid of what God will think if they don't give. That's what it's supposed to be. There's a fifth reason. We'll call this the commandment of God. The commandment of God. Giving is never suggested in Scripture. It's commanded. Giving is commanded to God's people in all, age, all ages. It was commanded to Israel. It's commanded to the church. It's the sixth reason we don't apologize. The preachers of God. The preachers of God. Giving is commanded for the support of God's preachers. First Timothy 5, 17 and 18 gives the double honor principle of support. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You see, preaching is the same as everything else in life. You get what you pay for. Here's the sixth reason we would call the missionaries of God. The missionaries of God. Did you know that giving is commanded for foreign missionaries? It's commanded. 3 John 7 and 8, For we have gone out for the sake of their name, for rather they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These are missionaries accepting nothing from the Gentiles, meaning that the unsaved, in this particular usage, the, the unsaved never are to fund the work of the gospel. In the verse 6 of 3 John, the church is to send them out, quote, in a manner worthy of God, generously and graciously. When I was at the Master Seminary for a time, I was in charge of all physical donations, things that people wanted to give to seminary students. And one lady brought a giant box of used tea bags. She said, I've used these once, but they're probably still good. I threw them in the trash because that's not sending them out in a manner worthy of God. Here's an eighth reason. The priority of sanctification. The priority of sanctification. I have noticed over my years in the ministry that professing believers who don't like sermons about giving tend to not like sermons about anything that sanctifies them. That they tend to want to be made to feel good rather than prioritizing being Christ-like. Here's a ninth reason. Glorifying God versus people. Glorifying God versus people. A hesitation to preach on giving betrays a view of pastors as having the job to pander to you instead of to proclaim the truth faithfully regardless of what people may think. And the tenth reason, I've already alluded to this, this is the most simple one, God owns everything. God owns everything. The fear of preaching on giving betrays a view of material things as belonging to you. Why would I be ashamed to tell you to give back to God something that's already His? It's already His. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Let me put that in legal language. The property is His, and everything on the property is His. It's all His. Those are ten reasons we don't shy away from preaching on giving. Let me give you a bonus reason, number 11, from our text. We'll call this one, The Constant Reminder of Giving. The Constant Reminder of Giving. None of the commands in our text use verb types in Greek, which mean talk about this once and never again. 
It never says that. These are commands that are to be repeated, said over and over again. So when somebody says you might preach on giving too often, we just preach on it as often as it comes up in the text of Scripture. Now, on the positive side, and I've heard this testimony from so many of you, in my years as a pastor, I've noticed that preaching on giving creates a renewed, uh, eternal perspective in God's people. It creates a rejuvenated determination to be heavenly-minded and, and not so earthly-minded and to hold loosely to the things of the world. And so it's good for our souls. And so our text this morning addresses the rich in this present age. And so most of you are going, well, good, this one doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Let me give you a preliminary definition of what he's speaking of, the rich in this, in this present age. And this is what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the rich. Here's a definition. Any person having income exceeding what is needed to attain necessities. The rich, or a rich person, is any person having income exceeding what is needed to attain necessities. And again, most of you are saying, this is great. I'm not rich. For once, I can just relax through a sermon. There's not going to be any, any sort of conviction here whatsoever. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. When you juxtapose what Jesus taught with the Bible's definition of the rich, if you have food in your refrigerator for tomorrow, you're rich. If you have enough money to pay your bills through the end of the week, you're rich. Why? Because God expects you to trust him for the day, not for the year. He didn't say, give us this lifetime, a well-stocked IRA, so we don't have to worry. He said, give us this day our daily bread. So I hate to disappoint anybody who thinks this doesn't apply to you, but I will say this. In the context of the, the city of Ephesus, there were definitely business people in the church that had an abundance of income. And while we would say, give us this day our daily bread, there were people that would never have to work another day in their life and still have plenty. That's probably the primary audience to whom Paul is speaking. However, this applies to all of us at one level or another. Historically, great moves of the gospel have been funded sometimes by a few. A few people with great means and who decide to go financially radical for the kingdom. I helped write some historical uh, notes for the Master Seminary a number of years ago, and the, the Master Seminary original facility was basically wholly funded by one man who wrote a check for $10 million because he said, we need to train men. Wycliffe Bible translators began in the mid-20th century with the backing of several wealthy believers and in 2008 received an anonymous donation to continue the work, the anonymous donation was for $50 million from one person. It's interesting to me that Christians seem to get easily on board with parachurch organizations, and at the same time, sometimes they're less enthusiastic about their own local church for some reason. That's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. Local churches who have risen above the monthly grind of just barely making expenses what happens to make that happen? That, that happens when members say, what can we do that's spectacular and we'll make a, a splash for the kingdom of God? And so this morning, I'd like to show you what Paul says to the rich in this present age. Again, scripture, scripture generally views this as any person having income exceeding what is needed to gain or attain necessities. 
And in these three verses, a little grammatical note, there's five infinitive clauses. In, in English, we translate them with the word to, to do good, to do this, and so forth. And so we're going to let the grammar lead the way this morning. And what I'd like to show you, we'll call these five eternal investment strategies. Five eternal investment strategies investing in what is truly forever. And we'll use those infinitive clauses to guide our, our thoughts here. We'll read the entire text. It's just three verses. Verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Five eternal investment strategies, and there's just one word each. The first eternal investment strategy, humility. Humility, it has to start there. Verse 17 begins, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, just to be crystal clear, when Paul says the rich in this present age, some have taken this as some sort of metaphorical riches, spiritual riches in Christ. He's not speaking of that. He's speaking of money. He's speaking of property. He's speaking of things. He's speaking of wealth that's tangible in this life. And Paul tells Timothy to charge them. This is the same strong word, and I know it's kind of a pun in English. It wasn't intended that way when you're talking about charging the rich. But that's just the English translation. It's the same word used in verse 13, this oath to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment. Verse 14. And again here, as I mentioned earlier, this is a present imperative verb. What that means it's not a one-time instruction. It's part of regular instruction. If it was a different type of verb, you could make the case that it's a say this once and never again. That's not what he's saying. He's saying say it once and then say it again and say it again. The first charge here is, is put in the negative. It's something not to do, not to be haughty. We don't use that word a lot today. It speaks of being conceited. It speaks of looking down on others, which I would say other than greed is probably the biggest tempting sin for the person with means to begin to subtly in their own hearts look down on other people. Paul is reminding them that the true value of a person is not in their possessions. For all of us, our true value is found only in Christ, right? He's our value. To be a person of means who is haughty is to fall for a severe deception. It's a self-deception that says that I am worth more than you in some degree. The deception says that you're worth more than you are and others are worth less than they really are. So why the warning about haughtiness in the context of giving to the gospel ministry? I think it's very clear here that if you believe that you inherently deserve what you have, you're less likely to part with any of it, Right? And so being haughty about your possessions makes you less likely to be a giving person. Or it may be, and this has been a problem in the church for 2,000 years, it may be that as a person of means, you may take it upon yourself to hold sway in the church or to exchange uh, uh, some power for condescending to give, to implicitly maybe demand influence, or maybe you'll decrease giving. Pastors have struggled with this for years, that the, the biggest complainer in the church also happens to be the biggest giver. What do I do with that? In other words, 
The person of means is to beware of a heart attitude of arrogance, a heart attitude of superiority, to be reminded that every nickel you have, yes, it may be earned, but God gave you the opportunity, He gave you the intelligence, He gave you the means to earn it, and He could strike you with an IQ of 45 anytime He wants. And thus, God expects a return on His investment in you. And it's not as though any of us parting with our stuff is going to actually hurt us in reality. We've already said this, but to the one who gives generously and with a cheerful heart, Paul promises in 2 Corinthians 9:11, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And listen to what your generosity produces. It has an impact in heaven. And we begin to get a little hint of where this is headed. What is the impact of your giving in heaven? Paul continues, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As a pastor at our dinner table, on occasion, we will thank God for you, for you being faithful because I bought food because of your faithfulness. And so God receives glory. God receives thanks. All because a saint chooses to exhibit humility. Now I think back again to the anonymous donor to Wycliffe Bible Translators 12 or 13 years ago, giving $50 million in any other realm of life, any other realm of the world other than Christianity, a donor like that would have wanted a building named after him, a seat on the board of directors, and a plaque the size of Rhode Island to put at the headquarters. Instead, this is humility, a desire to not be haughty because all of us are replaceable, right? Every one of us. I've seen this in the church of Jesus Christ more times than I can count that for one reason or another, a a large donor to the church leaves the church and you know, without fail, somebody else comes in every time. Every time. You see, since God owns everything and he's the one funneling his resources, if all he has to do is refunnel them away from you. That's all he has to do. And so there's no worry here. We're We're humble instead. That's our first eternal investment strategy, humility. The second investment strategy we'll call hope. Hope. Paul continues with a second negative command here, something not to do as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Hope is another heart attitude. We're still in the realm of the heart. It speaks of expectations. It speaks of looking to something with confidence. What Paul is saying here is that no believer is to look to money for expectation or for confidence. Why? Well, he says so because riches have uncertainty to them, inherent to them. Uncertainty, it, it means that which is unseen, that which is unobserved, that which is indistinct. Or to put it in terms we understand, that which is here today and gone tomorrow. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Know when to quit. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I love that. You picture your money just kind of going away. Instead, you set your hope on God. This isn't just a general, vague, yeah, I I hope in God. But it's a deep, heartfelt belief in the core of your soul that God is the only one who, what Paul says here, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
If God is your source for everything, then when you lose some of it, you're not worried because he owns everything else. Funneling more to you is not a problem for him. Uh, Just a little side note here, contextually, Paul is is giving a little poke at the false teachers of the church of Ephesus who ironically were often preaching severe asceticism, denying yourself normal earthly enjoyments in some false sense of holiness. And he's also poking at the hedonistic selfish greed of others. Chapter 5, verse 6, for example. In other words, the balance is somewhere in the middle that God intends us to enjoy all that he gives to us but we're to remember that the things we have are all given by Him. We trust the giver, not the gift. How do you put this theologically? Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19 gives us a very balanced perspective and a God-centered theology of possessions. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 begins, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. That it's okay to enjoy the things you have. That's why you have them. But for the believer consumed with worry about the future, consumed with making every single contingency plan, making sure everything is covered, and then you'll be generous to the Lord's work. In most cases, that never happens. And I've been a pastor long enough to have heard them all. I've heard, as soon as my business is doing better, as soon as my IRA is more fully funded, as soon as my kids' college funds are swollen enough, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as. And what usually happens Years go by, and as soon as never happens. This is the spiritual trap of believing that giving is the last part of your budget. When in fact the scriptural principle is that of first fruits, that giving is the first part of your budget. And perhaps it should be when you have that column in your budget that says income, part of your income should be listed as faith, that you're trusting the Lord. In my experience as a pastor, not that this is authoritative at all, it's just what I've observed. I've noticed that the level of faith and trust in the Lord that a believer has is not necessarily correlated to the level of money they have. It's not the same. That those with less very often exhibit a high degree of peace and contentment. Why? Because they don't even know what it's like to have enough money to coast on for a year, much less for a month or a week. They trust the Lord every day. When, you, when we say, uh, give us this day our daily bread, for some of us, that's a theoretical prayer for them. That's what they fall down on their knees praying every morning. And so their faith is high. And, and when some trial comes up, they just laugh at it. I've trusted the Lord so many times. He's been faithful every time. Haven't missed a meal yet. And ultimately, and I say this in all love, but ultimately setting your hope on riches can be indicative of a false salvation experience. Jesus told a rich young ruler who asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That wasn't a works-based salvation based on merit. It's not a program for salvation by giving away all your stuff. For the rich young ruler, it was a heart test to see what he was going to worship. He was already worshiping his stuff. And so Jesus said, stop worshiping it. Give your idols away. And sadly, this young man walked away from Christ. 
Instead, put your hope in the Lord. Do you know when the Lord will stop providing for you on this earth? The moment His will for you is done and you go home. That's it. First investment strategy that's eternal. Humility. Second, hope. There's a third eternal investment strategy we'll call heritage. Heritage. The third infinitive phrase Paul uses in, is in verse 18, that the rich in this present age are to do good. To do good. And you might think, well, that's a very common thought in the New Testament. Actually, it's a very rare thought. This particular Greek word translated to do good is used only one other time. It's used in Acts 14, 17 of God giving rain and crops even to unbelievers. Acts 14, 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good. There it is. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, since this is the only other time this verb is used in the New Testament, it, it bears paying attention to. We should pay close attention to it. In the context of Acts 14, 17, God is leaving a witness. He's leaving proof. He's leaving a legacy of his goodness. Or maybe to put it this way, God is leaving a legacy about himself. He points to himself by virtue of the fact that he's provided rain and harvest to all the earth. He shows how good he is that he gives these things to even unbelievers. For you, by your generous giving, you're leaving a legacy. You're providing a heritage but not pointing to yourself, but of pointing to just how important the gospel is to you. That's the heritage. Let me give you a very simple mathematical equation. Person of means plus stingy giving equals the gospel is not important to me. That's it. Instead, leave a heritage. Parents, you can teach your children from a very young age to give. They won't understand the gospel implications of that giving yet, but as they're able and when they come to faith in Christ, the pieces will fall into place. But you have to teach them why they're giving. And the typical answer is, well, because it's the right thing to do or because Christians give, that won't cut the mustard in terms of a deep, rich theology of the gospel. If instead you teach them to value the preached word of God, to value discipleship, to value the mission of the church to see the lost saved, then giving follows naturally. And after a while, it won't be because of habit so much as it is out of the, the heart to give. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. The location of your treasure shows where your heart was. So you have humility, hope, heritage, a fourth eternal investment strategy we will call habit. Habit. It is important to have a habit that's good. Paul goes on to say that not only are the rich in the present age to do good, but they are to be rich in good works. To be rich in good works. Paul uses a, a different Greek word for good here. It's, it's, it's different, and it's different enough to point out. The first word, to do good, is part of a compound word translated to do good, and it speaks of something beneficial, something useful. Just like God in Acts 14, 7 does good by giving rain and crops. It's useful. It's beneficial. Now here, to be rich in good works, this word translated good is slightly different. 
It speaks of something that's beautiful, something that's praiseworthy, something that's fine, something that meets a high standard. And so we want to cut these differences uh, very carefully here. First, Paul says to do good, something that's beneficial and useful. Second, he says to be rich in good works, something that's beautiful and praiseworthy. Now, what's the difference? A well-meaning church member might donate a huge monument with the names of the apostles engraved in gold and silver to put in our new parking lot. Beautiful? Yes. Useful? No. Not particularly useful. I'll go in there and we'll scrape the gold off and melt it down and put it towards something useful. Principle we glean then is that useful giving is also beautiful. Beautiful giving is not necessarily useful. That's why we rarely at Grace Bible Church accept designated funds. Meaning the giver tells us what we get to do with that money. We make a few exceptions, benevolence, missions, and our building campaign. But generally the elders decide how to make the beautiful gifts into useful gifts. But none of that is my main point for this section here. I want to focus on the fun that Paul is poking at the rich here. It's a good nature wink of the eye at those with means. He's saying to the rich, you want to be really rich? Be rich in good works, plural. Collect those. Just like you've gotten good at collecting money, as Chuck Swindoll used to famously say, the gift of giving is just as much the gift of getting. But just like you've been good at collecting money, be good at collecting good works. Be rich in those. It's the idea of saving them up, of being able to humbly boast about the wealth that you have, of good works that you've done through your giving. And in fact, he'll take this good-natured ribbing to a very serious eternal degree in verse 19, as we'll see shortly. What Paul is speaking of here, collecting good works, being rich in good works, is repetition, recurrence, duplication, or habit. That it's something you do over and over again. It's a lifestyle, it's a habit of good works to be rich in nature, to be rich in substance, to be rich in number. God does not call you to save your money for 50 years and then give the biggest donation in history at the end of that time. There's a regularity. There's a habit here. And you know what Paul said that God tends to do with those in the habit of giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So these are tremendous and tremendous Investment strategies, humility, hope, heritage, habit. There's a fifth strategy we'll call heart. Heart. Paul closes his instruction with the final infinitive clause that the rich in this present age are to be generous and ready to share. To be generous and ready to share. It's all one clause together. Generous speaks of giving liberally, readily imparting what you have. It speaks of the heart of giving. The the giving is from a a joyful heart, which is in fellowship with the body. And being ready to share, sharing freely, without compulsion, without hesitation, without conditions. I mentioned these churches earlier. I want to have you listen to Paul's description of the Macedonian churches, the churches at Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And their eagerness to take part in Paul's campaign to bring relief to the church in Jerusalem, which was under persecution. And listen to their heart. 
uh, being generous and ready to share from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. And this will just, this is mind-boggling. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, meaning they're under persecution, they're under grave difficulties themselves, for in a severe test of persecution, their abundance of joy, there's the heart, and their extreme poverty, meaning they don't have much, has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, that's a good budgetary requirement. Yeah, I budgeted for this. And beyond their means. Of their own accord. What does it mean to give beyond your means? It means you have a loaf of bread for your family and you tear off half of it to give someone else. Beyond their means, of their own accord, and listen to this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This isn't Paul saying, would you please give me money? It's the Macedonian churches saying to Paul, would you please receive our money? And this, not as we expected. And they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The churches of Macedonia, under severe affliction themselves, and yet they have an overflowing generosity, giving beyond their means. What does that mean, by the way? It means their budget did not determine what they give. Their heart determined it. And they begged Paul to do them the honor of letting them participate. Wow. That's a heart that's generous and ready to share. I would like to point something out. I think this is as good a time as any to point this out. In our current American governing system, we have an added benefit to charitable donations, don't we? That's that they are tax deductible. The Macedonian Christians didn't have that. Many forecasters today foresee a day when the government will use the church's tax-exempt status as a weapon of control to try to exert influence and hold us hostage by threatening our ability to have donations be tax deductible. What are we going to do? Oh, no. It's pretty simple. Verse 17, God is the one who richly supplies. So we give for the gospel's sake, not because there's a tax advantage to doing so. And at that point, we tell the government what they can do with their tax advantage. We don't need it, and we will never bend the knee to that. We will never let the government tell the church how to be the church. And if they take it away, fine, they take it away. And then, just like happened with COVID, the real believers and the false believers will be separated again. Why? Because the true believers already had the heart to be generous and ready to share and the taxable status of those gifts won't make any difference. So Paul has given five eternal investment strategies, humility, hope, heritage, habit, heart. But what's the return on investment? What do you get back? Verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul's not saying that by being generous, the rich in this present age are gaining eternal life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they're taking hold of. It means to make it a priority. That eternity is their focus. That's what is truly life. Look, when you get to heaven and you think about how hard you work taking all your vitamins and going to the gym and, and you, oh, wow, I, I made it to 75. Maybe I'll try for 80. And when you're there 10,000 years going, that was nothing. Paul is saying, have that perspective now. 
taking hold of what is truly life. Now, I want you to know this, that by investing in the kingdom, they are storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. What future? The heavenly future. Now, if you think this sounds familiar, means you read the Gospel of Matthew. Because Jesus said basically the same thing in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about heaven. I really want to nail this concept down. I could easily close here. But I want to solidify this concept because this is what Paul has been aiming for. He's been aiming for believers who are heavenly minded. This is the bonus. This is the return. Those who have money in this life and use it properly and are storing up treasure in the life to come. This is the idea of taking worldly possessions which we cannot take into the kingdom of God. We cannot take them into eternity and cashing them in for reward in heaven, in the millennial kingdom, in the final state even. In fact, theologians have a name for this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of transmutation, turning one substance into another. But here's the key. If you miss everything else, get this. The only time you can cash in the currency of this world for the currency of heaven is now. You can't do it later. There is no reward in heaven for God saying, wow, you had quite a bit of money saved up when you died. Too bad you didn't give very much of it because it doesn't carry over. As those with means are not being haughty, as they're not setting their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, as they're doing good, as they're being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, they're also doing something for themselves. This is the idea of delaying present gratification for future gratification. And it is the ultimate savings plan going into eternity. Let me give you an example. Although it happened on occasion prior to 1861, didn't happen often, the first time that the Union government before the Civil War began printing money was at the outset of the war. And they started just printing money to pay for everything. Well, the Confederacy beat them to it months before the start of the war, they started printing paper money as well to pay for the war they knew was coming because they were going to start it. Their paper money, though, wasn't like our money. It was actually a promissory note. And if you ever look at Confederate money, it says that, that the bearer can turn this in after the war to get gold in the same amount of money. It was a note. It was an IOU, this amount of money. The paper money could be exchanged for the equivalent amount in gold. But as the war went badly for the South, eventually a Confederate dollar was only worth two to three cents compared to a Union dollar. If you didn't exchange Confederate money for Union money before the end of the war, your money literally became worthless. And in the same way, all your money on earth becomes worthless in heaven unless you exchange it now. Now, for our text here, Some would say that all believers get these rewards and that all believers are rewarded equally. And we would agree that there are many rewards common to all believers. Uh, Obviously, at the top of the list, the reward of eternal life, bliss in the presence of the Savior, the countless blessings of the coming new world, many others. 
But the command here is to exchange worldly goods for heavenly goods, and it implies more faithfulness versus less faithfulness. And the motivation is what? It's that exchange. That's the motivation. So what is the treasure in heaven? What is the currency of heaven? And ultimately in the millennial kingdom and then in the new earth, what's the currency? What is it you're exchanging? Well, there's general agreement that eternal and heavenly treasure exists, but nailing down the exact nature of that treasure is a little bit trickier because there's a lot to choose from when it comes to the treasure we're storing up in heaven. Let me just give you some examples of what we have to choose from. We could choose from the crowns of reward listed in Scripture, the crown of victory from 1 Corinthians 9, the crown of rejoicing from 1 Thessalonians 2, maybe the crown of righteousness from 2 Timothy 4. How about the crown of life from James 1 and Revelation 2 or the the crown of glory from 1 Peter 5? Yes, those would be wonderful. Or we could choose from some of the rewards enumerated by Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12, that for believers who are persecuted... Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. Jesus said in John 14 that there are many rooms prepared for those who are his in his Father's house in heaven. Jesus gave the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. He tells the faithful servants who have been faithful over a little that they will be given responsibility over much. Jesus gives the parable of the minas in Luke 19 in which faithful servants are placed in authority over numbers of cities in the age to come. This certainly fits the promise of Revelation 22.5 that in the final kingdom, the saints of God will reign forever and ever. Or how about just the reward of seeing the full glory of Christ? Jesus prayed in John 17.24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. So where, what is it? What's the currency? What's the reward for which we literally exchange earthly money that our faithfulness in giving purchases for us. Most, if not all, the rewards I listed seem to be common to all believers, at least at varying levels. But what reward do we exchange money for by giving to the gospel ministry? By investing in the kingdom, what is the greatest reward you could receive? What's the currency you get back? What's the exchange? What is in your hand? Jesus told us exactly what the reward is. The exact exchange I'd like to finish our time together by having you turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to see what the currency is. And Jesus is going to use what is sometimes called an argument from the lesser to the greater. What that means is that if something is true on a small scale, how much more is it true on a larger scale? And he's going to use an example of a not so above board man. And he's going to say that if that man knows a certain principle, then the disciples, whom he calls the sons of light, ought to know better. Luke 16, 1. He's also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, he's about to get fired. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? And you get how low this guy is. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. In other words, heaven forbid I get a real job. And I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So what does he do? So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. That's a fortune. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. What is the dishonest manager doing? He's buying himself friends. He's buying friends for the time when he's unemployed and needs a place to live. He's using his money to buy friends. And in fact, the master says, well done. That's actually pretty cool that you did this. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And now here's Jesus' point. For the sons of this world, the dishonest people, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying that the dishonest unbeliever knows more about how to use money than the sons of light. And now Jesus tells us the point of the parable in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That means your money. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The unrighteous wealth is the money of this world, which is passing away. But Jesus said to do what? To make friends. And where will you meet these friends? In the eternal dwellings where they will greet you. Unbelievers use money to buy earthly friends. Believers in Christ are to use their money for the spread of the gospel and therefore are buying heavenly friends. What is the reward which we literally exchange earthly money for in heaven, that our faithfulness in giving purchases for us. The reward is new, eternal, and everlasting friendships that you make because people are greeting you in heaven and giving you credit for them being there because you gave to the spread of the gospel. They heard the gospel and they were saved. Now here is a mind-blowing thought. Apparently, God is tracking every penny you give to specific people that are saved as a result. How he does that is far beyond our understanding, and it's astonishing to even think about. So when you exchange the perishing earthly money for heavenly currency, the currency that's paid to you is in the form of men and women, eternally grateful for their salvation, funded by your giving to the gospel ministry. That motivates me. So what do we do? Purchase friends. Purchase friends. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the word of God, which is so very clear, so very relevant, written thousands of years ago and yet as fresh as this morning. We're thankful for salvation in Christ. We're thankful that you are directing salvation. That is, Psalm 3 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. You have directed us to be part of that gospel work, Lord, and we're thankful to be allowed to have a part, like the churches in Macedonia, begging the favor of giving to the gospel ministry. We're thankful, Lord, for Grace Bible Church. You've created a generous, loving, very gospel-centered church, and we ask your protection and your help for us to continue to do so. And now, Lord, we come to really the high point of Christian worship, the high point of our thoughts of Christ, and that is the Lord's table. 
And so we humble ourselves in these moments, Lord, now to remember not what we are to give, but to remember what you gave. That you loved us so much that you sent your only son, your one and only son, that whoever believes on him might have eternal life. Bless us now as we come to your table. We pray in Christ's name, amen.